The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. That's the good stuff right there. There is so much life, even just this week, happening at Irving Bible Church. Mourning with those who mourn, rejoicing with those who rejoice, getting to celebrate baptism today. Uh, We've got formation starting tonight, people joining community. There's so much life happening here and seeing kids and youth on that video as well. Shout out to Pastor Nandy and the team and Pastor Cortina and the team. Just so much good stuff happening at IBC. And today we conclude our Paths of Peace series in Proverbs. And so we've been in a series the last few weeks looking at three perennial ethical issues that Christians have struggled with, people in general have struggled with, money, sex, and power. And Oscar Wilde, a poet and author, said this, everything is about sex, except sex. Sex is about power, which is to say that everything is about power. And so today we're talking about wisdom and power. And it's interesting, if you think about it just for a moment, the way we use this term, power, we have a myriad use of this word all across different cultural spaces. First, you have power in in physics, the transfer of energy over time, power in physics. But then in hockey, you've got the power play, right? And we intuitively know there's an advantage over the disadvantage because there's an opponent in the penalty box, so it's it's the power play in hockey. But then you've got the power move, the power grab, the power trip that shows up in organizations or in leadership or sibling rivalries maybe, the power move, the power grab, the power trip. We have power distance in in cultures. You have a high power distance culture and a low power distance culture. And over time, America has become a low power distance culture. We have power dynamics. Michael Scott enjoyed the PowerPoint, PowerPoint if you're an Office fan. And of course, we had the 1980s evangelist group, the Power Team. Anybody remember the Power Team? All right. We have songs that use this term. Huey Lewis wrote The Power of Love, made famous by Huey Lewis, and Back to the Future, The Power of Love. James Brown wrote Soul Power. Snap wrote The Power, and you know the song. I've got the power. Can y'all join me? Let's all together, one, two, three. I've got the power. There you go. Peter Gabriel wrote The Power of the Heart. Just listening to that last night. Kanye West wrote simply, power. We use phrases like, that was a powerful experience. She had a powerful role to play in that situation. Or they're a power couple. You ever heard that one? They're a power couple. What do we mean by this word? What are we referencing when we say power? And is this good? Is it evil? Is it righteous? Is it necessary? Is it avoidable? Who has it? How do we get it? What do we mean by all of these uses of power? And over the last number of decades, we've grown in our culture to have a distrust of of institutional power, a frustration with the expressions of political power, a confusion with the power of the media, and even an experience of the devastation caused by quote-unquote powerful leaders within evangelical church space. What do we do with power? Is there any good news about power? Is there any good news? Professor at UC Berkeley, social psychologist Dr. Keltner wrote a book called The Power Paradox, and here's what he said. Power defines the waking life of every human being. 
It is found not only in extraordinary acts, but also in quotidian acts. What a great SAT word for the start of the school year, quotidian. Indeed, every interaction and every relationship, be it an attempt to get a two-year-old to eat green vegetables, or if you're like us in our home, to get a two-year-old to eat anything at any point if they don't want to, (laughs) to inspire a stubborn colleague to do her very best work. It lies in providing opportunity to someone or asking a friend the right question to stir creative thoughts or calming a colleague's nerves or directing resources to a young person trying to make it in society. Power dynamics, patterns of mutual influence define the ongoing interactions between fetus and mother, infant and parent, between romantic partners, childhood friends, teens, people at work, and groups in conflict. Power is the medium through which we relate to one another. Power is about making a difference in the world by influencing others. Is there any good news about this invisible but felt experienced reality of power? And I wanna say today emphatically in the story of God, yes, there is good news about power. And so for for this sermon, I just wanna give you the sentence Uh, that kind of summarizes it all because we're gonna cover a lot of content. So here's the sermon and a sentence. God empowers us for his mission of renewal. Pride prevents it, humility advances it. God empowers us for his mission of renewal. Pride prevents it, humility advances it. So before we go into God's world, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time and your word together. We give our attention to it now. It is life to us, it's a light in the darkness. It is living and active, it's truly, it's truly powerful. So Holy Spirit, I am weak, but you are strong. Would you be strong in me? And may the words of my heart and the meditation of my mouth be pleasing to you. And uh, Lord, we pray that right now you'd speak to us through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we'll move through this. Part one, God empowers us for his mission of renewal. We're in this series on Proverbs, which is wisdom literature, But we have to situate wisdom literature in the full story of God because all of the wisdom that's talked about in Proverbs is anchored in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and then the rest of the Old Testament story and beyond. In fact, Proverbs 8, wisdom is talking, saying, I was there with God at the beginning of creation. And so wisdom itself is is anchored there. And so when we talk about power, let's go all the way back to the beginning and see where did power originate and is it good? Is there good news about power? Genesis 1.26 says this, the very beginning. We know that God uh, spoke a powerful word and created the cosmos. And then he said this, let us make mankind or humanity in our image, in our likeness, so that they may, say it with me, rule. There it is so that they may rule. Let's make humanity in my image, in our likeness, that they may have authority, that they may exercise dominion and power, that they may rule. And already right here, we see the goodness of power and how power is truly used. That a good, generative, powerful, majestic, glorious God creates the cosmos and then gives his power away to his creatures. I've created you in my image and in my likeness that you may rule, we already see the goodness of power and how good power works. The powerful one giving his image bearers power to rule. So power at the beginning is good. And it reminds me of this story. One summer growing up, I worked with a man named Scott and Scott was an auto mechanic. 
And uh, I traveled around with Scott and we would change oil throughout the summer. And uh, I worked at Enterprise Car Rentals and just be under cars all day long changing oil in the summer heat. And uh, Scott was an auto mechanic. You know, they've got like the, the hands that are thick as steak and his forearms bigger than my whole body, it felt like. This guy was huge. And I, I was, you know, a high school kid. I didn't have a lot of strength yet. And I'm under cars changing oil. And uh, I just couldn't get this one nut to turn. And I was like, hey, Scott, I need help. And so he comes across the parking lot, goes underneath the car, and uh, he, he nudges it just a little bit. He doesn't actually turn it in full for me. He nudges it just a little bit, and then he leaves the rest up to me to, to turn it. And uh, he stays there at the car. I'm giving it you know, all I've got, and finally it breaks, and the oil goes out into the can, and I just felt great, right? And he goes, that deserves an attaboy. And I was like, all right. And I was like, you gonna, you gonna say attaboy, or are you just gonna say it deserves? And he goes off. And I go to the next car and change an oil. 20, 30, 40 minutes go by, I don't know. It felt like a long time. And out of nowhere, across the parking lot, I hear Scott go, attaboy, just so loud. <laughs> and I was cracking up. But I remember uh, the power that I felt in that relationship because he had, he had invested it in me. The physical power, the strength that he, he lent on my behalf, right, to start moving that for me. But then also the emotional power the, the power of saying an encouraging word, saying, out of boy. Scott, in that moment, showed a, a proper use of power because we were made to rule. And what does power mean? Power definition given is, is simply the capacity for meaningful action in the world. That God, is, as a creator, giving us his image bearers power, he's giving us capacity to rule, to have meaningful action in the world, or maybe to use more gospel-centric words. God empowers us by his Holy Spirit to do redemptive, restorative, creative good in every sphere of life, be it personal relationships, family, community, work. God gives us the capacity for meaningful Action, But then very quickly in the early part of the story, we see this wisdom of power in Genesis 1. But then in Genesis 3, this power is co-opted by something that the, the Proverbs address a number of times, pride. You see, across the Proverbs, the, the concept of pride and humility at play. And here in Genesis chapter 3, we see power and pride link up. And here's what the serpent did in tempting the woman and Adam as well. He said this, "'For God knows that when you eat of it, "'the tree of the knowledge of good and evil,' When you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Right here, the thing beneath the thing. Power is good and the enemy brings pride up. He says, you'll be like God. And this word pride in the Old Testament carries this, this sense of elevation, an elevation of oneself. And the irony is, is that humanity was already like God. They were image bearers. They were his representatives in the world. But the enemy says, you'll, you'll be like him. You can do what he does. You can, you can think how he thinks. You can know what he knows. And you see right here, power gets linked up with pride. And God empowers us for his mission of renewal in the world, but pride prevents it right from the start of the story. And then in every day of our life, pride prevents this flourishing, renewing, meaningful capacity of action Good power, proper power, pride prevents it. You will be like God, and the sin of pride co-ops the sanctity 
of power. And we see this here in Proverbs 8, pride and power and the wisdom literature of scripture. Proverbs 8 says this in verse 13 and 14. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. And here's what wisdom says. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight, says wisdom, the wisdom of God. I have, and there's the word, power. Do you see it? I hate pride, I have power. I hate pride, I have power. Because power alone is God's. He has all of it, but he gives it to you and me. And he hates pride because it prevents the proper expression of this capacity for meaningful, redemptive action in the world that you and I are called to. I hate pride, but I have power. And here's a definition of pride. One author has written it this way, that pride is simply an exaggerated sense of self in relation to God and in relation to others, an exaggerated sense of self. And you know, like as Texans, we kind of get this, kind of get this. If you're not from Texas, uh, maybe over time, this might be a posture you, you take on. But you were born in Texas, you might have been raised in this way. John Steinbeck said, the great author John Steinbeck, that that Texas is a state of mind. You know, like when you travel outside of the country, if you're Texan and someone asks you, where are you from? You say, I'm from Texas. And then, and I live in the US. We carry this sense of, of pride. And then maybe we, you know, we, we link that up with pride in the Dallas Cowboys and I just don't know if that's a good move. You know what I mean? It's just like, just take it easy. But we get it. Texas, we kind of have this bravado, this southern western pride going on. There's really two types of pride. It shows up in a million forms, but it comes down to two things. Posturing and protecting. Posturing is this more, more extroverted, visible pride. Uh, it's calculated. I'm going to I'm gonna posture myself in this conversation in such a way with what I say next or what I do next or what I mention about my life slightly elevates me above you. It's gonna posture and pride. And protective pride is more introverted, less easily detected, more invisible. But we use protective pride when we feel uh, vulnerable or like we lack control or that we're afraid or there's insecurity. And maybe someone is either confronting us lovingly on something or maybe we're just in a conversation and we feel that pride rise up and we protect ourselves, we get defensive. And so it shows up from the inside, this protective pride. And Jesus in the gospels said that the evil, uh, the evil that we experience and wrestle with comes from with, within this sinful heart that needs redemption. And one of the words he uses of things that come out of the heart is arrogance. It comes out of the heart of a person, the center of who you are, which is why we need a new heart. We need new power. We need new life, posturing pride and protective pride. And I just wonder like what pride shows up for you. Do you find yourself potentially posturing yourself as uh, just slightly smarter than others? Just slightly more logical most of the time? Or maybe you're in the car like me, it's kind of like, I'm basically a better driver than everyone else. I don't know. And my wife clearly thinks that I'm not. Posturing pride. Uh, maybe it's, it's posturing in your status at work. 
the amount of money that you have, type of car that you drive, typically for us as Americans, it's rooted in materialism, right? But then protective pride. Do you struggle like me with that, that when you feel vulnerable or called out or lovingly confronted or insecure, you lack control, that you get defensive? It's all pride. In fact, one theologian said this, proud persons do not think it necessary to ask forgiveness because they do not admit their sinful condition. The attitude toward God finds expression in one's attitude toward others, often causing people to have a low estimate of the ability and worth of others, and therefore to treat them with either contempt or cruelty. Some have considered pride to be the root and essence of sin itself. Others consider it to be sin in its final form. In either case, it's a grievous sin. And so the wisdom of God in Proverbs 8 says, I hate pride, I have power. Why does God hate pride? It's not just because it's an egotistical posture. He hates pride because it deforms and distorts the calling on your life as an image bearer to exercise power, the capacity for meaningful action in the world for the sake of others. He hates pride because it gets in the way of his, his renewal. It gets in the way of what he wants to do in and through you. But if pride is the thing beneath the thing, we must go one layer deep, one more layer, because there's something even deeper underneath all of this. In fact, Paul writes about this in Ephesians 6. He says this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly realms. So we have God's good power co-opted by pride, but there was a power behind that. That temptation came from, Paul situates as the powers, the spiritual forces of darkness at work behind the things in the world. So pride is a sin that shows up in our heart, it's true and real, but it's not just you and me, there's a power of pride at work in the world, spiritual opposition against the things of God spiritual oppositions against the things of God occurring in and through you. Paul calls it the powers. Spiritual darkness structure, structures itself through pride. It'll structure itself through pride in our institutions and even in our individual lives. That pride shows up in institutions and individuals and behind that is this power. So think about it. God is, is bringing together and has always desired a multi-ethnic kingdom. And so behind racism is not just us being mean to one another and dehumanizing one another. There's a larger spiritual component at play, a power, the powers behind that. And so we can't just move into spaces of justice and reconciliation and righteousness on our own understanding and wisdom we have to acknowledge that there are powers beyond ourselves that we say and resist. It's taken care of in Christ. There's a power at work behind many of the isms in our world, especially racism, a demonic power of division. And if you question this, James, Jesus' brother in James chapter three, links all of this up, humility, wisdom, power, heavenly power, demonic power. Let's read it. It says this in James three. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. 
But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition or pride in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such quote unquote wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and here it is, demonic. The powers, false wisdom. For where you have envy and selfish ambition or pride, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Do you see it? James links it all up. Humility and wisdom, true power. And then pride has demonic power. We link up with this force that is in opposition to the way of God. And that's what the enemy wants, to keep you from experiencing his life and to keep you from, from giving that life away in meaningful action, redemptive good in the world. And here's how Proverbs sets it up. In verse, or chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. This is what happened in Genesis 3. Pride rose, you'll be like God, and then the great fall. And this happens in every day of our life where we let pride rise up, and inevitably on the back end of that is a the conflict gone awry or a relationship that is now bruised and need healing, or you fill in the blank. Pride rises up like my three-year-old building a little tower of blocks and her little sister coming over and knocking it down. Pride goes up and just, just gets knocked down. Pride and power together, that's the logic of the world, but it's not the logic of the kingdom. Because God empowers us for his mission of renewal and pride prevents it. But here's the good news. Humility advances it. Humility advances it. We have these powers at play. So, so what do we do in our relationship with Christ? How do we move forward with this capacity that he's given us as image bearers for good in the world? We have to rely on the power of Christ. It says this in Colossians 2, verses 14 and 15. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Here it is, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In Christ, not only is our pride forgiven, in Christ, the powers behind that pride, the powers of spiritual opposition against the things of God happening in and through us in God's good world to bring his renewal and his flourishing in Christ, the powers of sin and death have been disarmed, triumphed over by the only true power in the cosmos, the power of the cross. In Christ, we are set free from sin and death and forgiven that we might live empowered by the Spirit, again, as image bearers, to bring his good in the world. In Christ, the powers, they've been disarmed. And in Christ, the gift of the Spirit has been given gift of the empowering spirit of God to restore you and me as image bearers to do what he's called us to do, redemptive good, restorative, creative work in the world. Whether you're the parent at home raising kids, feeling like you're trapped and limited in this environment of, of, of young years, or maybe you're, you're a boss and you're running a company You've got power in both of those scenarios to enact meaningful good, to leverage for the sake of others. So for those of you who have obvious, overt power in our world, 
How might God be calling you to leverage it for the sake of others? For those of you who feel like you lack power, you lack agency, you don't have ability to make meaningful good happen, don't neglect the ministry of small things that God sees you in the hidden places. He knows the faithful decisions that you're making to honor him and to glorify him. And maybe it's a moment with a child, like it's happened for me where you respond in anger and you wish you would have responded in patience. Anger is a false form of power. Patience is the power of the spirit, the way of the cross, where we choose in a moment humility, not in our own power, but in the power of Christ, the power of Christ. And here's what that looks like in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 12. Before a downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Humility before honor. Humility before honor. Let's look at Philippians 2. Paul says to the Philippian church, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, and here's an ancient hymn of the early church, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, the false improper linking of power and selfish pride. He didn't consider to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, true power, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, humility before honor, the cross before the crown, humility before exaltation, God longs to partner with humanity. And Jesus became the God-man, God in the flesh, and fully fulfilled our vocation for us to disarm the powers and re-empower us by his spirit to do what he's called us to do, to take our everyday lives and put it before him as surrender, to choose humble love in our world. The capacity that you and I have as image bearers for meaningful, redemptive, restorative, creative action in this world that so desperately needs it. True power is found only in Christ, only in humility. Andy Crouch says this, from the beginning to the end of the story, from creation to consummation, the Bible is full of references to power. You'll often hear pastors say that Jesus gave up power and indeed the climax of salvation is the cross on which Jesus is stretched out, suffers and dies having refused to grasp the power within his reach. But as the early Christians reflected on his life, death and resurrection, they came to a different conclusion precisely because they were witnesses to Jesus's resurrection after a violent death, the New Testament writers could no longer acquiesce to the idolatrous fiction that violence is the truest form of power. Instead, they had seen with their eyes and touched with their hands evidence of a much greater power at work in the world, more powerful than Rome could muster, more powerful than the powers of darkness." Jesus wasn't powerless in the sense that he gave up power because it's bad. Jesus showed us that violence 
and oppression and aggressiveness and force and the logic of the world, that's one way of power, but it's rooted in pride and it ultimately will fall. But he shows us the truest, purest, most righteous, most effective form of power in our world. And we as image bearers by his spirit can surrender and say, yes, today I am weak, I depend on you. I don't have the power against darkness, you do. You've disarmed the authorities and so in your power I choose love. I choose humility. I choose service. I choose a loss of my life that I might gain it in yours. We are empowered by the Spirit. Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. 2 Timothy 1.7 says that we have not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. Ephesians 3 said that uh, to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or think according to what? According to the power that is at work within us. Truly, I've got the power. And it's the power of God. It's not my own. It's not your own. So what do we do with this? How do we show the world true power as Jesus' church? First, we embrace our gospel identity. That like Paul says in Romans 12, we don't think too highly or too lowly of ourselves. Sober judgment. I'm a creature dependent on my creator, but I'm a child of God, infinitely valuable and empowered by him. So we embrace our gospel identity and humility. And we simply ask the Holy Spirit to reveal pride. Where might you be posturing or protecting? And where might the Lord be inviting you to repent? Because he's disarmed the powers behind that and forgiven the sin of pride so that you could be set free and live free. And then third, like the New Testament describes, we choose humility there aren't many prayers in the Bible about asking God to humble ourselves or humble us. Rather, there's direction in Scripture to choose humility before the Lord. Today, how could you choose humility before the Lord? How could you repent, come before Him, and say, I'm weak, but you're strong? And so we see as we come to the table each week and we celebrate and remember the body and the blood of Jesus, what we are remembering is power in its truest form, humility. Humility that advances the renewal of God. If we come to the table, we remember that God is our strength, that all power belongs to him. And so there's a prayer we like to pray here at IBC, and I'd love to, to pray it with you as we come to the table. So if you would, gather your elements and we'll receive the body and blood of Christ but as we do, let's take a moment to posture ourselves rightly in humility. It's a prayer that we pray together. I'll pray it over us. You can pray it as you'd like, maybe under your breath or along with me. I'll read it once individually and then once communally. It says this, Holy Spirit, I am weak. You are strong be strong in me. Maybe in its plural form, Holy Spirit, we are weak. You are strong. 
Be strong in us. Holy Spirit, before the cross, we see true power that overcame sin and death that forgives us of all of our sin so that we might in humility receive the power of the Spirit and live as your image bears truly in this world. Holy Spirit, we are weak. You are strong. Be strong in us. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.